Welcome to His Story, a teaching series with Pastor Mickey Bryce from Center Stage Church. This nine-part series explores the story of God from a theater perspective. Now, here's Mickey Bryce. My name is Mickey Bryce, and uh, for those of you that might be listening by podcast, we're in the middle of a teaching series here at Center State Church called History or His Story, whichever you prefer. It's a uh, kind of a uh, march through uh, the Bible and some of the high points of the story of God. Um, it began with certainly with creation. We're moving through the Old Testament sequentially and chronologically. We're to the book of Isaiah today. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But uh, if this is your first chance to, um, to listen to one of these podcasts, you have three other ones before this one to catch up. So uh, we'll let you do that. For those of you that are here live in the room, you are gluttons for punishment for sure. Thanks for coming and enduring all of this, uh, but we hope to make it worth your while. So, uh, today's message is called A Remedy for Stage Fright. You may know that each of our messages are kind of geared toward pictures and experiences and illusions of what it's like to be in the theater. Uh, We have a community theater here at uh, uh, Center Stage called Zayo Theater. There are a number of you that are heavily involved in that, as well as those that might be listening. And so we're trying to put all of that in the context of what it's like uh, when you uh, operate in the theater. If you're not a theater person, that's okay too. Just ignore all those illustrations and uh, pretend that I'm talking about something else. All right, so today the message is called A Remedy for Stage Fright. Stage Fright, and we'll talk about what that is in just a second. I want to talk uh, first about what comes to mind when I say the underdog. So who comes to mind? Maybe it's this guy, Nelson Mandela. He was an underdog. You know his story. Maybe it's the 1969, uh, excuse me, there's Lech Walesa uh, from Poland. Okay, you remember him. Uh, The 1969 New York Jets. Remember Joe Namath? All right. Some of you that don't have gray hair, you won't remember that, but the rest of us do. Uh, How about this one? The 2004 Boston Red Sox. Okay. Notice that wife is clapping, husband is not. That's the story of the 2004 Red Sox in a nutshell. Uh, How about the 1980 U.S. hockey team? We all remember that. Okay, how about maybe Underdog himself? How many of you watched Underdog when you were a kid? Yeah, all right, I love all you people. All right, keep giving money, that's right. All right. Underdogs face overwhelming odds. Everyone knows they're going to be defeated. Everyone. They're outgunned in every way. They face overwhelming odds, or so it appears. Quite often, you and I face overwhelming odds, whether it be in our marriages, in our work, with our kids, um, in our investments, all kinds of things that we do, we can feel very easily in this world overwhelming odds against us. (coughs) We face challenges that as people are overwhelming. Many of you have come through an experience like that, but I bet there's not a single person in this room of any age that hasn't felt like underdogs. Does anybody remember the story of Underdog? There's no need to fear. There's no need to fear. Underdog is here. Everybody said that. I can't, you people are weird. <laughs> I guess I'm weird too. We all fit. All right. Hallelujah. So, speaking of long odds, I want to introduce you to a man named Nick Vujicic, who I think you will agree after seeing this video faces un. Believably overwhelming odds. Here he is. 
So I'm in the front passenger seat, we're at the traffic lights, and this car comes up next to us, and this girl's looking at me. And I'm looking at her, she's looking at me, I'm looking at her, she's looking at me, I'm looking at her. No arms, no legs. All she legs. sees is my head, right? She has no idea that I have no arms, no legs. So I'm thinking, cool. I'm gonna freak you out. So I get the seatbelt in my mouth and I loosen it like this so then I can freely move. And she's looking at me like, why are you eating your seatbelt? So I pull it, the belt is loose, I can move. Now she's looking at me full 100% attention and focus. Now just imagine all you see is my head, all right? You might want to put up your hand up to your face to cut off the rest of my body, all right? So you can really see the effect. So just, that's it, exactly. Here we go, ready? I just did this. Unbelievable, thank you. You can turn that off, all right. So, boy, you know, and, and the chuckles certainly are not, you know, we're not making fun of, of the gentleman. But it's an unbelievable story. And he goes around doing uh, like motivational speeches. And it's an unbelievable set of, you would think, odds stacked against him to be able to do that. So all around us is difficulty. We face difficulty every single day. Disappointments. Extreme circumstances that can be overcome. But there's also the everyday disappointments in life. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to Fry's. <laughs> Ladies that shop, gentlemen that shop, you'll know what I'm, nothing against Fry's. Well, it is something against Fry's. <laughs> somebody, somebody disappoints us. We get tired of the things we do. We can't manage the digital coupons. We struggle to meet our goals. We make a living, keep the house clean, make good grades. At times, we face physical danger where something's going to hurt you, really hurt you. Like high-rise construction workers, we may face financial hardship because we lost our job or we lost our house or something happened in our investments. We may feel cast out of our social network for some reason or another. Well, I have a good friend who was cast out of his social network three years ago during one of the crises because of some mistakes that the gentleman had made in his past. And it was, okay, I get that people make mistakes, but it was unconscionable the way he was treated. Terrible, in fact. And we all suffered from it, didn't know what to do. Sooner or later, you and I are going to face some sort of serious illness as well. Someone we love, most of us have faced some sort of relationship breakup, whether it be a marriage or an estranged child or parent, a co-worker, a friendship. Uh, we all experience the loss of a loved one. I just did. My family did. Reg and Dusty just did. Suddenly, gradually, it really doesn't matter. Uh, it's hard. And you find, oh, you think you're ready for something. You're not ready for anything. You're only ready for it when you got through it, all right? And so you realize that things are hard. You need to grasp onto the people that are around you. It is enough, as they say, to depress a hyena. You remember that? That's right. When I ask people how they, were do how they are doing, I often hear the words, well, pretty good under the circumstances. Um, seems like we're all living under the circumstances, but we're all afraid under the circumstances. And so I have a question. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. It's not a question I've never asked before. I've made this little uh, thing, uh, this little speech already. The question is, what are you doing as a Christian under the circumstances. So we're in the fourth talk today of a series that's called His History, His Story. And I want to propose this to you. This is, uh, I've titled it Overcoming Stage Fright. Um, uh, but the message really is about this. If I know his story, 
the story of God, I can trust him even when I face overwhelming circumstances that seem to be working against me. I can trust him. When I remember the truth of the Bible that God has given me, I can overcome the stage fright that keeps me from remembering his part in this story. Well, many of the top performers in the world get stage fright. I do. I remember walking out for the first time to play Richard Nixon. Yeah, it's cool and everything to have black hair for the first time in 60 years. <laughs> but no matter who you are, no matter what experience you have, it still is a little bit of uh, butterflies when you walk out. And they're all looking at you. So they don't know what they're about to hear. You better deliver. And so you're a little nervous about that. You should be. Because uh, theater is what they call a dynamic art. It exists in the passage of time. It doesn't just, you can't just like appreciate it all at once like a painting. You have to sit there for a while. And as you sit there, things happen. And sometimes things happen that... Uh, fill you with stage fright. Many of the top performers in the world get stage fright, so you're in good company if you do, and even if you get up to do something at work or all, it's the same deal. Stage fright may come and go or diminish, but it usually does not ever vanish. Even after 50 performances, you still walk out there and those people still paid $35 to see that performance. So you have to bring it, so they say. You must concentrate on getting the feeling or whatever it is out into the open and you must put your perspective under control. Remember though, the good news is nobody ever died from stage fright. But according to surveys, most people would rather die than give a speech. Okay. Today, we're going to go to the book of Isaiah. It's in the New Testament. I mean, excuse me, in the Old Testament. From the time of David, remember we talked about David. Israel has seen the decline of its empire. Saul, David, Solomon, the temple. Then all of a sudden, the thing begins to break down. Many years has gone by. The, the kingdom has been split in two by disagreements and sin. The prophet Isaiah, if you don't know what a prophet was, it was a man uh, who was established by God, sent into the area to tell what God thinks about things, to bring people either to repentance or to challenge or to remind the words of God. So Isaiah lived in a time of great political and military social difficulty in Israel, and it was caused by Israel's lack of attention toward God. And we're going to meet a guy whose name is Ahaz. Now, that's kind of a cool-sounding name, but I don't think I'd want to be him. I don't think you will after you hear about him. He was king of the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, which included Jerusalem. He is the great, 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 great grandson of David. So that's more greats than I can count back. I know five back, but that's as far as I can go in my life. His reputation is one of severe misbehavior and wickedness. How would you like to be remembered 2,000, 3,000 years later as a man of great wickedness? I think I'd kind of get busy trying to change that if I cared. 2 Kings 16.3, we read, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his grandfather, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. 
engaging in detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. <coughs> we can't imagine such a thing. We think, why would you want to kill your child? It's just a horrible thought. And all jokes aside, it's an, it's an anathema to think about. And yet we live in a culture that does exactly that by the millions. Hmm. Okay. The year is 734 B.C. And let's pray together before we get into this a little further. Father, we pray today for uh, your word to receive a place uh, where it can be planted in our hearts. Would you water that and grow it? Teach us your truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now we're in Isaiah. Our text for the day is chapter 7, verse 1 through 14. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Razan of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. They could not overpower it. So these two cats, they've come against Israel. Now in the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest, shaken by the wind. So the bad guys are coming. They hate you. They're going to kill you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. And he was. They were. They were afraid. Now, there are, if you're listening again, you don't see the map. I think, is there a map? Do we, there we go. So that's a map of Israel. Those of you that just got back, Reg, I'm sure you recognize a big body of water there next to the green. You saw that, right? Okay. So the two neighboring kingdoms which threatened Judah and King Ahaz. Judah and King Ahaz is down to the south. One of his former brothers in the northern, is the north, northern king of Israel. The other is modern-day Syria, which is called Aram, and it's off to the east. Okay. King Ahaz was afraid, so were his people really afraid. And let me say right off the bat, uh, we already know from the word that Ahaz did not trust God. He was not listening to God. So if that's your situation, it's a little easier to get fearful because you got no help. You're not asking for it. You're not going to get it. So he's afraid. It is God's presence in our lives and the Holy Spirit which dispels fear. If you're not walking with the Lord, that Holy Spirit is there waiting, but not in fellowship with you. And you're going to have difficulty with fear. Nothing to fight it. <coughs> so God sends Isaiah to talk to King Ahaz. Verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and your son Shear Jashub to meet Ahaz in the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's the two kings that are coming against Ahaz. Because of the fierce anger of Razan and, and Aram and the son of Remaliah, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. So, okay, uh, get ready, because these guys are coming, coming and they want to kill you. But don't be afraid. Okay, is that all you have to offer me? Do you have any swords, chariots, anything of the sort? Okay, thanks, but I'm going to be afraid anyway, all right? <coughs> so Isaiah comes to reassure Ahaz about God's intentions. In fact, um, Isaiah speaks mockingly about these other two countries. Smoldering stubs of firewood. Now think about that picture. What, what is a smoldering stub of firewood? Well, it's used up, done its thing. It's just going to lay there. And what you can do for it is put it out. 
okay, or stomp on it. God sends the prophet. Uh, they are seeking to overthrow Ahaz and replace him with Tabeel, who is a governor of Syria. So here's what God's message to Ahaz is. That's a hard sentence. God's message to Ahaz is. Dun, 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 dun. Verse seven, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. That's what a prophet could do. This is what God says. Hey, baby, it ain't my words. It's God. Listen up. It will not take place, God says. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only reason. With 65 years, within 65 years, Ephraim will too be shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom of Israel, is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's only son, Pekah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So when's the last time you prayed because you were scared of something in your life? Last week, maybe? What if you had a voice of God speak to you and say, the thing you're worried about isn't going to happen? And you knew that because you trusted God. That'd be pretty good information to have, wouldn't it? You just go about your business. Oh, good. Thank you, Lord. And off to work we go. Well, that's what Isaiah says. Say yes. It isn't going to happen. Wow. Don't you wish that you would not be worried about what will not happen? Uh, we are so worried about things that we don't even know if they're going to happen. And yeah, okay, I get that but it's bad enough to worry about the things that are happening. But we, because we're human beings, we have imaginations, we worry at times about things that aren't going to happen or that we don't know that they're happening. They haven't happened yet. A Johns Hopkins University doctor says about worry, we do not know why it is that worriers die sooner than the non-worriers, but it is a medical and scientific fact. But I, who am simple of mind, think I know. We are inwardly constructed in nerve and tissue, brain cells and soul for faith and not for fear. We are made for faith. Think about that. God made us that way because he wants us to be that way. To live by worry is to live against reality, written by a man named Dr. E. Stanley Jones. So God also reminds Ahaz that if he does not stand firm in his faith, he will not stand at all. He wasn't talking about uh, Samaria and Northern Kingdom. He talked about Ahaz. Believe me, or it's not going to go well for you either. <coughs> so here's kind of a bizarre thing that happens now. Isaiah has come. Hey, let me encourage you, Ahaz. And he continues this in verse 10. He's, he's going to give Ahaz a reassurance. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Now, this is right directly. We don't know exactly how these words get communicated, but Isaiah's there. And here's the Lord's word to the king. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. So God makes an offer of a sign to the king. He wants Ahaz to trust him. Now, that's not unheard of for God to offer a sign. Um, it's happened in other places in scripture. He wants Ahaz to trust him. And God is willing to confirm that in the physical world. We don't know what the sign would be because Ahaz says no. Okay, it says there, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. So you step back from that and you think, okay, is that an act of faith or an act of disobedience? Seems on the surface, if I say I don't want to put the Lord to the test, it means I believe God, I don't need to test could be. However, God just said, give me, 
you know, ask me for a sign, and he says, no, I won't. So I will propose to you that it was an act of disobedience, that Ahaz, in my interpretation, isn't interested in hearing God's confirmation because he doesn't really have a relationship with God. He's not in fellowship with his God. Why would he believe God? He wants Ahaz to trust him, but Ahaz doesn't. I think this when he says, no, I will not put the Lord to the test, says I ain't fooling with it. I trust, you know, what I see in my army and so on and whatever else. Or God really won't do this. And without too much judgment over Ahaz, let's think about our own lives. So just for a minute, when, when there's people who come to you and say, you know, talk to the Lord about this. Nope, nope. Because when I was a kid, my mom died, and I've never really recovered from that. It showed me that God is who he is. He really doesn't care about me. He's detached. He is everything the Bible says God isn't. And because of that, I'm going to walk in my way, and I'll let religious people walk in their way. More's the pity for you, unfortunately, because that's a terrible error. And every time I run into someone who is struggling with having a relationship with God, there's some sort of deep-seated anger that's come from something that happened to them where blame is put on God, and God didn't do that. And you can say, well, if God is God, he does everything. Well, but you can also say that God is not the author of evil. But evil does exist in the world, so where does it come from? Well, we won't go there right now. But the point is, people have a choice. Within the circumstances of life, do I trust a loving and holy God who has spoken to me about who he is in his word? Will I believe that, or will I believe my own instinct? And many times we say, I hate you, God, because you made my mom die. I don't mean my mom. I mean this Ill, imaginary person who has never recovered from something in their past. And I have great compassion toward people that are hurting because we've all hurt. But the point of it is we can't blame God on that. And when we do, it doesn't go well for us. We're the ones that lose, and 50 years goes by, and we still hate God for something. We don't really even remember what it was we hate him for. We just know we don't like him very much because he made us hurt. Well, he didn't. Because it hurt means you live in a broken world. So here we are, back to Ahaz. I will not ask, he says. I will not put God to the test. I will not give God an opportunity to speak directly to me to confirm or deny anything about what God has said because I just don't care. I am much more important things to do as the king. Sound familiar? It's where our government lives. We will not ask God for a dadgum thing. Because we don't really believe that God is intimately involved in the affairs of men. Heck, we live in a multicultural society and a multi-religious society. It's wrong of us to ask the God that we understand to be God for his help. And yet we curse him when the help doesn't come. Hmm, who's the stupid idiot in that scenario? I won't put the Lord to the test. No, you won't. I'm so sorry. He doesn't want to hear from God because he is not interested in what God offers. Verse 13, a sign is given anyway. God can communicate a sign. God doesn't need Ahaz's permission. And Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. It is not enough to try the patience of men. Will you try the patience of my God also? No kidding. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here we see something in the midst of this scenario that we've heard all of our lives since being kids at Christmas. The virgin will be with child and will give you birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And we're talking now a prophecy of Jesus in the context of this wartime scenario. Isn't that kind of bizarre? But wonderful. 
Because after all, what does a promise about a Messiah mean for Israel? Deliverance. Salvation. Confirmation that God is good and he's powerful and he's loving and he has an agenda that's for our good. Hey, in the midst of all your disobedience, never forget Messiah's coming anyway. He's coming anyway. Anybody that trusts him gets to live with him forever. And if you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus as your savior, or if you listen to this podcast and you don't know Christ as your savior, we can, we can fix that. I mean, God can fix that. You can fix that. And if you want to grab me after the service, we sit down in my office and we'll pray together. You can ask Christ to come into your heart. You can do that sitting at your home if you're here in this podcast, or you can call me, 480-216-9333. And we'll pray over the telephone about that. Anytime you want. Any day. So this beautiful messianic prophecy comes to one of the most godless kings in history. God gives Ahaz a sign. It's an important sign because it will prove that what God said about reason and Pekah is true. God tells him that out of David's line will come the virgin who will be called Emmanuel. In other words, um, Israel will not fall and be destroyed forever. Because if a, if a Messiah is going to come later down the road, it means that the Messianic line through uh, all the way to um, uh, uh, Mary and to Joseph, the royal line and the servant king line, <coughs> has to exist through that whole time. The primary meaning of this Messianic prophecy is this. God is promising again to bring a deliverer out of not just David's descendants, Ahaz's descendants. Ahaz is in the line. Even though he's wicked, God's going to use him down the road. Jesus is descended from Ahaz as well. That's kind of incredible to me. Think about that. 700 years later, Messiah Jesus is born. Long after people have forgotten about it. Well, they haven't forgotten about Ahaz because we're reading about him today. It comes from David's house through Ahaz, a wicked man, that they cannot be destroyed now by the Syrians or by the northern Israeli, uh, the northern kingdom. So God goes on to tell Ahaz that this promise is true in spite of the way Ahaz has responded to God. So we think, oh, I can thwart God. No, all you do is you lose the promise yourself. You're not gonna keep God's promises from occurring. You can think you're fighting God, but you know, they say in the theater, my arms are too short to box with God. Ahab's feeble faith in God causes Ahaz to be rejected, but it does not, enter, does not hinder the promise. Hallelujah. In a way, this sign or promise is a judgment on Ahaz because he says in spite of your, your uh, wickedness, your desire to go your own way, it doesn't change my love for my people and my desire to send a Messiah and it's going to come anyway. In this way, this judgment on Ahaz is a, a, a statement about the way he's conducting himself as king. Not long after, we might add, Ahaz goes away. He's replaced by his son, Hezekiah, who becomes everything spiritually that his father was not. Hezekiah is known for his godliness and is willing to trust God and make changes. So, let's go back to our picture of stage fright. I understand you got kings with big armies, they're coming against you. It might make you fearful. 
of what's going to happen. Back then, if you were the king and they got defeated, you just like got, you know, your throat slit. So it was the end of you. And that might make you afraid, I would imagine. So I get that. Things like that in our day and time, it's not quite so stark in terms of a military situation. But there's plenty of things that make us afraid. And in spite of the fear that might beset us, God has given us a task as well, a privilege to live for him. And we have to grapple with the fact that God has given us a way to overcome the fear that might beset us before we can do what God calls us to do. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe it's desperate. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something you can do tomorrow and you don't even have to tell anybody about it. And maybe it's something where it requires you to stand in front of a group of people or lead something or start something. I, I don't know. But I can promise you this. Stage fright is not the end. Because if you stand up to that like an actor has to, I was always taught, trust your training. In other words, if your stage fright is great, the amount of rehearsal required to perform is even greater. So the way you fight stage fright is to be so confident of your lines and your character and your costume malfunctions, the vision the director has given you. If you are still so afraid that you're terrified and can't get out there, you haven't prepared enough. So get to rehearsal, and a good director has to see that in his cast. Same thing is true as a Christian. If I am just terrified to, to speak in front of people, and it's God has called me to speak in front of them, and I don't mean you know preach or anything, but just talk to a friend, then I haven't prepared enough. And what does that translate to me? Go back to what did we talked about last week. The Bible is the script. Go back and read the script some more. Uh, directors say, don't just read the script, study the script. Think about the script. Figure out what might have happened here and look at the second layer and the third layer of the story and all of that. That's what is required when you are afraid to do what God has for you to do. You come apart when you get out there. Okay, step back, go back to your preparation, study harder, Practice where you're safe with your spouse or somebody. Get out there and try again. Stand out there and do whatever it is, but don't not act because God wants you in the arena. He wants you in there because he wants to use you. You have a unique story and that's the subplot of this series is that it's not just his story, it's my story too. My story is subject to his story, of course, but my story is still important too because for our lifetimes, that's what we write. And what will it be? Okay, the remedy for stage fright. Know his story better and better. That's where I was going with all of this. Knowing the story of God comes from a relationship with him. It comes from reading his word, the Bible, no other book, studying it and applying it to your life. I don't mean that you shouldn't read other books. What I mean is that they're not inspired word of God. There is only one and it's the Bible, okay? In its original text. This process is called spiritual maturity. It's called becoming more like Christ. It's the purpose of living as a Christian is to become more like Christ to the point where God calls us home. It's gradual, maybe more gradual. Sometimes it's very gradual because we don't want it to be fast because we don't pay the price. We think it should happen to us rather than in us. 
The more you apply his story to your life, the more you can experience God, the more you become like Christ, the more you will suffer, the more you will realize you will reign with Christ as you have suffered with Christ, and it will be ultimately joyful, and your perspective will deepen and widen, and you'll be able to do things you never thought you were capable of doing. And all of a sudden, somebody will say, you're my hero because you trusted Christ, and I saw that in you. Parents, never forget that. Never. Maybe one day you'll have a child say that to you. I can't think of anything greater except maybe the Lord saying it to me. The longer and more you uh, know his story, the more you apply it to your life, the less you fear. So that's step one. Know his story better and better. Second, remember it. This is why we memorize scripture. As Christians, we put it in, we hide it in our heart, which means we memorize it. Every actor understands that. Memorize your lines. People, get off book, I scream at them. You can't become an actor until you're off book. That means you know your lines, so I can work with you now instead of carrying around that book. Remember, it's hard to remember what you have to refer to in a book when you need it. Now, I'm not saying you throw away the Bible or anything like that because you'll never memorize all of it. But hide it in your heart and it's right there. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In the beginning was God. All of these things. Remember his story in the times of trouble. Listen to what Psalm 9.9 says. Here's a great one if you're hurting today to memorize. Just go home and memorize one verse in a week from now. If somebody goes home and memorizes a verse next week, you have my privilege to stand up here and say it by memory. If you memorize it this week, you tell me about it if you want to. I'll let you say it to the, to the audience next week. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. You want to feel oppressed? The Lord is a refuge. What is a refuge? It's a place you can go for safety and protection. If you're oppressed, it doesn't qualify the oppression. Oppressed, you know what oppressed means. Somebody getting on your case for whatever reason. The Lord is a refuge. Go there. Talk to him about that. Lord, thank you for protecting me. Tell him that. Enjoy that. A stronghold in times of trouble. Woo. From Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills removed, yet my unfailing love for you will never be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. Now he's talking to Israel there. But it's true for them too. Hallelujah. Remember, remember it in times of trouble and you will not have stage fright. Remember this as well. He is a present refuge. I remember on 9-11 when all of us were so freaked out and scared to death. We had a worship service at Red Mountain Community Church that night. I'll never forget it because people came in with a different attitude than I'd ever seen in my whole life. It was like, I gotta get to church. I need to be at church. And it was like, wow. I didn't think these people really walked with God that much. I mean, not the whole church. They were wonderful people, but there were people that I just never heard them talk like that before. Well, there's a lot of people didn't talk like that before. That's what 9-11 did to us. And I remember I put up on the screen this verse. Okay. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 61. From Psalm 34, it says, we are never alone. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. From Psalm 48, we're never without guidance. Never. For this God is our God forever and ever. This God is our God forever and ever. It means, yeah, God's over here. God's important. God's powerful. God can do anything, but it's not, he's not over there. He's over here. 
This God is my God. In other words, all of that power is directed toward my life. Woo! Take that one to the bank. He is a present refuge. A present refuge. If you're struggling with something today, no matter what it is, God is present in your struggle. He is a refuge, not somewhere in the future, right here, right now. Wherever you are, he's there if you turn to him. He prepares us to stand firm in our life as a Christian for him. Listen to what it says here in James. Uh, I don't have the chapter, but it's verse 13 of some chapter. But we ought to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on. I don't mean you don't continue to study and see the nuances and greater meanings as you live your life. I mean, take the truth that God has given you right now and stand firm in your life, whatever that means to you. I don't know what it means. I mean, I know what it means. I don't know what it means for you necessarily. What it means for me is I want to speak about Christ to as many people as I can, as often as I can, with as much humble knowledge as I can, and as much experience given to God in credit as I can. That's what it means to me. So you go figure it out. Stand firm or don't stand at all. Let me go back and say a word about this picture of living above the circumstances. Why should we be living under the circumstances? How do you live above them? I know that's a word play. Uh, let me take you back to what is not always the most well-loved musical, but it is a funny one and a great one. Um, you either love it or hate it. Not just in general, but as you're watching it. Annie, okay, sweet girl, little orphan Annie faced overwhelming odds. Story of the depression, et cetera, et cetera. Miss Hannigan, she says to Daddy Warbucks, she will leave the hard knock life. And he responds by saying to her, yesterday was quite awful. And she spends the rest of her life overcoming these circumstances. So, um, he was well aware that some of our yesterdays are just plain awful in the story, but it's true for us as well. There's not a one of us that doesn't look back on our life and think, well, that was just awful. We had a big family gathering last night, and we were remembering with a, a little bit of humor some of my stupid mistakes in the past, which is kind of a common refrain at our meetings. And I said, oh, kids, I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> I, the thing I took the family through, I said, please forgive me for such stupidity. And they said, we won't. <laughs> but that's our family. <laughs> it's pretty harsh. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they did say we won't. Um, uh, we may not face the tyranny of Miss Hannigan, in the orphanage, but we have our moments when life is a bit of a hard knock. Uh, sickness brings pain and death brings grief. The ruthless acts of a few terrorists bring us fear. One thug's crime is our insecurity. Bad habits lead to doubt. Bad decisions lead to self-destructive uh, behavior. The abandonment of a loved one, an irresponsible parent, an unfaithful spouse, a rebellious teenage son or daughter, these things render us alone, empty, and in real pain. There's no doubting that. None whatsoever. 
But God never intended for us to be dominated forever by a hard knock life. When I say forever, he does intend for us to be knocked temporarily in order that his character be built in us. Total support for that in scripture, but not forever. The purpose is to come through that to become a trophy of God. That you can say, look what God did because he did it not for somebody out there, for me. And because of that, I trust him today and I give him the credit and I bless him for what he has done in my life. God never intended for us to be dominated by the hard knock stage fright life. He sent his son to bring life to that life. He calls it the abundant life. And I'm not a prosperity preacher. There may be times where financially it's hard to overcome. But I am believe in the words of Jesus when he says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The next time someone asks you how you were doing, I encourage you not to say, well, under the circumstances, even if you're not doing well. As a Christian, you are not under the circumstances. You have the very present reality of a loving powerful, holy, invested, present God in your life who is actively working on your behalf. Every single one of you. How does God do that for all of his children? I have no idea. He's pretty busy. The idea that God is busy humanizes him in a way that is probably inappropriate. But the next time somebody asks you, how are you doing? Well, under the circumstances, oh, no. you've got to pray. Well, yeah, you do got to pray, but don't be so dour. Things are good when you think about it. They're very good. And there is great reason for every believer to be optimistic, not because life isn't hard, but because God is in that life and he makes it worthwhile. And he allows you to step onto that stage of life and not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for the fact that you have stepped into our lives and offered so many ways out um, of our difficulty. Lord, I know that sometimes that difficulty is just, we have to live through it. But we live through it with you, so we live through it in order to grow in our faith. I know that life is hard. I know that people um, get hurt and are mis- Uh, behave on their own and mistreat others. But I know, Father, that when we can somehow get rid of this entitlement mentality that somewhere in the world and someone owes us perfection and money and all of this stuff and simply be humble about life, we can receive from you the way life was supposed to be lived and that is that we thank you because we're the ones that walked away from you and you have rescued us through your son, Jesus. And we thank you that because he died on the cross and you put our sin on him, he paid the debt that I owed. And I'm debt free. I can enjoy your presence for eternity. I can step onto the stage and I can recreate the story of faith that you have written. Thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us for the next lesson in this Center Stage teaching series and tell a friend about our His Story podcast. For more information about Center Stage Church in Gold Canyon, Arizona, visit Center Stage Church. Dot O-R-G.